forces of 200 and I think it's more now companies that are boycotting Russia. Um, now you might say, good on them. Well, what's, you know, what's the problem with that? Well, that's all very well and good until they turn the guns on you. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Really excited about our guest today. We have Australian Liberal Senator from South Australia, Alex Antic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Evelyn. Thanks for having me. Now, I've been watching your journey, particularly over the last couple of years. Um, I'm sure you know you've been uh, speaking out about things for longer than that, but I think the last couple of years has forced a lot of people to be interested in politics, to be interested in what is happening in Australia. And uh, a lot of people have gravitated towards yourself because you have been one of the few Australian politicians who feels to be on the side of the people um, and who seems to be speaking common sense, which is quite fleeting at the moment. Now, I wanted to sort of get your opinion on the handling of the last couple of years. I know you've out, been outspoken spoken about the vaccine mandates in particular and would love to hear from you know your lens um, what it's looked like for you yeah, yeah well look thanks Evelyn like it's very generous I, I'm, I'm not sure about um, you know having how many people are that interested in what I say but it's you do your best in this job I suppose and that's about the best you can do and um, the last two years have probably been a pretty interesting time to come into Parliament. It's, uh, I was uh, elected in the election of 2019 so July 2019 and um, you know, we were sort of six months, if that, off this fairly tumultuous period in, in our history that we didn't think was coming. So I thought we'd be dealing with more routine things. I was looking forward to doing the, the work that a conservative liberal should do in trying to call for removing regulation and red tape and all the rest of it. And here we are. And it's, it's sort of taken a different tangent. But yeah, look, a very interesting ride along the way. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't know, I think that there are things that that just aren't being said always as clearly as they should be sometimes from all sides of politics that need to be said. Um, and the COVID period has has probably for the first time in our history brought a lot of these things to the surface. You know, little things even like, um, you know, how the Federation works. I mean, that, that's something that's become laser-like focused in the last little period because we're dealing with border closures and we're dealing with um, you know, travel and uh, and the various different power balances between the states and the and the federal Commonwealth government. So there's been a lot on the go, but I guess the the key thing really has been this issue of of the mandates for me. It sort of goes to the very heart of um, the thing, the reasons why I got involved in politics, really, and, and the party's core principles, in my my view, which are individual freedom, freedom of choice, um, and you know, some of these things that have touched small businesses as well tie into that. I think this. You know these sort of imposts that have been put onto small businesses have really uh, have really caused me to to sort of speak up. It's not always popular, um, brings a lot of draws a lot of fire. But uh, you, you know, as somebody once said to me, you shouldn't be in this business to ride with it. Politics ultimately is 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 combat. So uh, sadly, we've got to sometimes speak up and do that. And I think the, the vaccine mandates have been one of those very very important issues. Yeah, it's been quite divisive um, in Australia. You're seeing families divided. I, I personally have lost family because of my personal choice. Um, and you're seeing a lot of children being upset with their parents for decisions that they've made. Um, and yeah, it, it is quite disheartening watching the Australia that you love be so divided, particularly so close to home within the home. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's refreshing seeing a politician who is willing to have this conversation because a lot of us just want to have that conversation, but it seems like objective debate is something that we're not allowed to have. Um, and I was going to ask you, you mentioned before that, you know, there's a lot of fire, you know, with your position and a lot of people who disagree with what you say, what has it been like? In, within house for you? Um, have you found allies close to you that have been supportive or have you kind of had to really step out on your own here on, on a limb? Oh, look, not, not too bad. I, one thing I will say is that, I, you know, we hear it all the time that the Liberal Party is a broad church and I know it's a hackneyed old phrase, but it is true. Um, and one thing you generally don't get into trouble for is having your own opinion and your own view and sometimes even your own stance politically. And that's certainly been the case for myself and probably for, for Senator Rennick from Queensland, who's who's probably adopted a pretty similar similar line. So look, pretty good. I mean, I have to say, I haven't really noticed the difference whether or not there's been some, and I don't know about it, might be the case, I don't know. But 
Um, you know, I think we have to we have to remember what we're, we're bound on and the principles we're founded on is to be able to have that individual mm. thought. We're not the ALP. The ALP move uh, in a circle, move in a pack. And, and there are lots of people, I think, inside um, my party that agree, both at state and federal level, and have spoken to many of them. Um, not everybody is as fortunate enough to be in the position to say that, though. I, I think this is very much the work of the upper house. Uh, it is harder at the lower house because of the nature of the, the, the vote, and particularly, um, you know, when you're looking for 51% of the vote, I don't, I don't know if you'd get 51% of the people with you on this issue. So I, I think, you know, from my point of view, I, I, there's a whole host of reasons why it's important. Um, but, you know, it's the old adage, isn't it? If not, who, if not you, then who? And if not now, when? And, you know, I, I just, this is a, I mean, a really, really, really important issue for the, for the country. I, and I think one of the things that's really struck me perhaps even 18 months ago was how quickly Australians kind of um, fell into this acceptance of authority. Um, you know, because I think Aussies are basically good natured people and are trying to do the right thing. But um, the question remains whether or not we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to our freedoms. And mm. one of the things I'm really, really keen on here in South Australia is having a look at, once we can get back to normal, whether we've reclaimed all of those freedoms, because it struck me that there are emergencies utilised um, for clawing power back for, for bureaucrats and other public servant type arrangements that never never get returned to the people. So that's something I really want to keep an eye on. Um, but there's so, there's so much to cover at the moment. We've, we've, everything's a moving target, I guess. Yeah. And you've spoken um, pretty uh, boldly about the... Um medical backing for the mandates and how there basically is no medical backing at all, uh, which would justify the mandates. Is this something you, you'd be happy to sort of elaborate on for us? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Look, I, I think it's the, the great um, intrigue about what's happened and, and this almost pack-like mentality that we've seen institutions and professions, entire professions, the legal profession, the medical profession, although you know, I know they've had their difficulties with their own regulatory body and getting whacked on the knuckles for having the temerity to say what might be good for their own clients, you know, and, and, and patients, I should say. Um, so putting all of that aside, it really is one of the most intriguing things we've seen because early on when this, you know, injection, we'll call it an injection if it's a vaccine, uh, was introduced, we were, Pfizer, I think the, the, the makers of one of them were saying, well, this will stop, you know, this will stop transmission and it's going to stop mm. it in its tracks. And it became clear pretty early on in the piece that it wasn't doing that. Um, and so that caused people like myself, I think, to ask some questions. I'm sure you, your alarm bells were raised for you as well. Uh, and to ask questions of the medical bureaucrats, the health bureaucrats, uh, which I did in, in SA, to say, well, what is the what is the scientific, you know, trust the science, right? We're always told to trust the science. So let's let's see it. What is the medical basis for mandating people? Um, if this, you know, medication is not stopping transmission, um, then really what difference does it make to customers if you're running a shop or co-workers if you're running a professional services business? And why are all these businesses um, putting their own mandates on. We saw this very similar pattern in addition to the, um, the sort of the, the public health uh, mandates that were put here in, in South Australia, of which there were a category of about five for nurses, teachers, police officers. We also saw the private sector following in suit, um, doing the same sorts of things, and nobody was ever really explaining why it was. And so that was a source of pretty extreme frustration for, for me and, of course, you know, for the people that have been forced out of jobs and uh, and have had to had to make that terrible decision about you know do they take the plunge on this medication or do they uh, or do they lose their jobs? I mean, we, why we've been putting people into this without concrete evidence is 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 a scandal as far as I'm concerned. And so I, I've asked that question. I did ask that question of uh, SA Health here in South Australia, and we put um, a freedom of information application, which is really the only mechanism other than writing to. But I don't get a lot of answers when I write my letters. Um, an FOI application, Freedom of Information application to the SA Health bureaucrats seeking pretty much everything, all of the you know, notes, all of the recommendations, all of the copies of these incredible medical studies that show that this was a, a going concern, this, this mandate issue was worthwhile. Um, didn't hear anything, you know, we, we triggered off the next point, the sort of the month, you know, you've got to ask again and didn't do anything, didn't do anything. And eventually upscaled it to the ombudsman, the statutory body of the ombudsman here, um, and didn't hear anything. Ultimately, the ombudsman made an order um, that the documents be released, and they still wouldn't produce them. So, 
you know, you start to wonder what is this all about? Eventually those documents were produced. There are about 50 pages. They're all committee meeting minutes where they were talking about everything but mandates. I'm not even sure if the word mandate gets referred to at all in there, perhaps once, but certainly only in passing. And, uh, you know, you sort of shrug your shoulders and say, well, what, what is going on here? What, where, what is this all about? And where's the evidence? You know, we, we've heard for the greater period of the last 15 years, you know, trust the science, the, the, the climate is changing, the earth's heating up. I know that's the case where you are there and, uh, uh, you know, in, in um, you know, New South Wales. I mean, it's, it's, it's madness. And yet when it comes to this very serious issue, uh, the evidence is nowhere to be seen. So I, I think this is a brewing issue and something we're going to hear more about. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm not sure whether this happened and coincided at the same time, but it was only a couple of weeks ago the South Australian Police Commissioner or Minister actually dropped the mandates for uh, police officers. Um, now, part of that was that unvaccinated uh, police officers had to jump through certain hoops that vaccinated didn't have to. So there's that two-tiered system still there. But it was refreshing to see common sense prevail to some degree. But, you know, and similarly in, in Queensland, we had the uh, QFS, the Queensland Fire Service, drop their mandates. Um, we also had the, the life-saving in Queensland do the same thing. And there, I think there are a lot of people in New South Wales and Northern Territory and Western Australia who are just kind of waiting with their fingers crossed and hoping and praying, is this going to spread? Is common sense going to prevail elsewhere? And I I think you also have the question of people who have lost their employment over the last couple of years because of these mandates. I think mm -hmm. there's something like 7,000 or more school teachers in New South Wales alone who have lost their jobs because of these mandates. And um, lots of Australians just want to see the science. You've mandated it. And it was actually Fauci um, and somebody else as who's part of Pfizer in America, who at the beginning did say, if you take this vaccine, you will not catch it or transmit it. And very mm. quickly, that narrative, you know, unwound from itself and, and the truth came out. Um, but the, the mandate still remained. And it's just been mind boggling for so many of us because it just doesn't, it wouldn't even pass your basic pub test, yeah. um, you know, this level of science. So can you see this changing anytime soon? Do you think that there's a bit of momentum, you know, coming from South Australia with this inquiry? Do you think it's going to get infectious across the country and these will, mandates will finally be dropped? Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I, I saw that police uh, commissioner one. That was actually 24 hours after they released the documents on FOI, which I don't think yes. are, I don't think are related. I'm certainly not taking credit mm -hmm. for that. I think that was probably in the works anyway for whatever reason. So I don't know. But look, I had hoped that some of it would continue, and and, and sort of that would be the spark that would um, continue to catch fire. It hasn't happened yet. Um, there've been some kind of anecdotal references to businesses dropping some here and there, but. The real main game, I think, is, uh, you know, are these, these sort of, you know, public health um, mandates that have been rolled out. They all seem to, I mean, certainly here in SA, they seem to come from uh, the Emergency Management Act, which was the, um, the piece of legislation that was amended back in April of 2020. And it was, was amended by our parliament to throw the gate open to having control from the bureaucrats here. And it, it effectively made the police commissioner the, the state controller is the term under the act. Um, and of course, he takes advice, presumably, from others about what's right and what's wrong, what works and what doesn't. That's, that's of course, a point of interest as well. Where is it? That's what we were looking for. Um, but really, it's sort of, they're, they're the main game. And, and once I think those have fallen away, if they fall away, I think a lot of the private sector will struggle to justify it. Um, I mean, I think personally, and I'm not, this is, you know, being in the legal game is a long time ago for me now, but I, and so it's not an advice, but I, I think people should keep their eye on that. I mean, ultimately, um, we've got a, um, in this state, um, a Supreme Court challenge coming up at the end of this week. Uh, I think it's the 17th or the 18th, or it might even be both. It's a four-day trial before the Supreme Court of South Australia. It's a, a pretty credible, I shouldn't say pretty, it's a very credible um, challenge that's being run by some very, very experienced people, uh, which is going to challenge that, that very notion of, was this Emergency Management Act properly utilised for this purpose because, of course, it was two weeks to flatten the curve and that became two years to kind of, you know, bulldoze some people's livelihoods. You know, it's, it, it's so that, and that's going to be really interesting because what, what they're going to be asking the court to do is to make 
um, a decision about whether, and I'm paraphrasing this a bit because it's, as I say, it's been a while, um, but to, to make a decision as to whether or not, and a declaration as to whether or not the act was properly used and this rolling over of the declaration of a major emergency has been properly, properly undertaken. Now, if the answer to that is it shouldn't have been used, then the mandates fall away. And potentially, I think there might be um, litigation that comes from that. I mean, if I was a, a nurse who'd been forced out of my job and I'd lost six months of work, I'd, I'd be pretty keen to explore that. And I would say as well that you know, people who've been in private enterprise, and there are many that have suffered a similar fate, they should be taking advice about that as well, if it's to go that way, and we'll know more in due course. But it's a very, very interesting challenge, one of the, one of the most interesting in the country. And if, it, if it's upheld, and, if the, and the court will make findings about things like transmission and will take evidence from experts. Dr. Professor Nikolai Petrovsky, I understand, is going to be giving evidence in support of the plaintiffs. Uh, and it'll be very interesting. It, it, by the way, he was the, um, the expert, as I understand it, um, in the New, New Zealand uh, High Court matter, which was just found a completely different set of legal facts and circumstances, but his evidence has been accepted by a superior court. So we will see. Um, and we'll see what comes of it. But it's, it's, I think that's going to be a very interesting little um, join in the fork in the road on this whole debate. And, you know, let's see how it goes. Yeah, I've often advised people who have children, like parents who have kids at the end of high school age, tell them to become a lawyer because I feel like moving forward, they're never going to be out of work. I feel like these particular avenues are certainly something, as you said, that should be explored, should be looked at um, because many people feel like it's been, uh, hasn't been justifiable with the sort of actions that have been taken. I think the emergency powers have been quite terrifying. And what's more terrifying is they've been around for a long time, like a lot of our public health acts and a lot of our emergency powers uh, were enacted into parliament like a very long time ago. So these mm. sort of extreme powers um, and capabilities of this legislation have been around for sometimes decades. Um, and what's terrifying, I think, for a lot of people is the precedent that has been set during this particular pandemic and what that could potentially look like in the future. Uh, you know, is it, is it so far of a stretch to think that climate change lockdowns might not be possible or, you know, we've got this mosquito um virus that's now entered Australia, is this going to be another thing? And I, I think that it's quite fair to think that people are scared that this could possibly happen again. So I, I am very hopeful and prayerful in these legal battles that are sort of coming forward. And I hope it bears good fruit. And I, I think I can speak on a lot of Australians in that that's where a lot of our hope sort of lays. And, and separate to that, I think we feel a little bit helpless. Like, what can we do? Like, what what is it that we can actually do to try to make sure this doesn't happen again. Do you have any advice for Australians um, in terms of that? Yeah, I think there's probably two things. I mean, the first one is, of course, they have to let their MPs know. I mean, I think the number of people that are being um, active is, is really, really good. Um, but there are more, I think there are more people that just don't think about that. I probably wouldn't have prior to getting involved in this business as well. It's just something people don't think. So it's really important they tell their state uh, and federal MPs um, all about that. But one of the things I think that's that's really missing from this this whole scheme is the is the longer term focus, and that is um, we 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 you know as a as a collective I suppose as a uh, as a sort of you know, conservative um, you know but, uh, type of uh, person need to be re-involved in all of the processes. We need to be re-involved in the political process. Um, we need to be re-involved in all facets of life because the left have been on a long march through the institutions for decades and decades and they now populate the field they populate the field in terms of universities and university boards school boards um, you know professional bodies the AMA and you know potentially even law societies and that voice has grown to a point where it gives uh, them an enormous voice and I I personally think that the numbers and people will be staggered to learn how few um, what the, how small the numbers are in major political parties like mine. Um, the ability to get involved in politics, to join a party and to get involved really lends weight to trying to pre-select candidates that share your values. I mean, many, many people, I think, and we saw this through the abortion to birth bill here in South Australia, um, spent hours and hours out writing to their MPs and emailing them, right, ringing them, going and meeting with them, and then ultimately marching on the streets and of course, I think many had probably on both sides of politics have probably made their mind up from the start. 
Um, what we need is people who share our Judeo-Christian values in, in the parliament. And, and you do that by either becoming that person, which is terrific, or by joining a party and supporting someone who does want to do that. Um, you know, and, and the numbers are slight. We're talking several thousand. I think the party here in South Australia has 5,000 members. Now, we had that many at the Walk for Life. The fact that we're still um, pushing against the tide in that sense is, is an indictment. We need to be involved. Um, and we need to make sure that when these things come up, we've got people that say, hang on a minute, you know, this um, Emergency Management Act variation, you know, the COVID Management Act variation bill, um, is that going to give too much power to the bureaucracy? You know, we need, we need I'm not saying there aren't people there already that do that, but we need people that, that push back in the opposite direction. And if, you know, if you want to see an example of where that's worked really well, Hungary and, Hungary and Poland are two such countries that have done exactly that, that have reformed politics and are pushing back in the opposite direction in the name of you know, righteousness, in the name of our Judeo-Christian values. So um, these are really, really important things and they're things that people need to really take into account um, and, and to get involved and to, and to, and to show your um, message that way, as well as, of course, all the things we've been doing, which is telling members of parliament how you feel. Yeah, I think now more than ever, we have to take an interest in politics. I think Australia, by its culture, is quite, she'll be right, mate, and just yeah. get on with it. If it doesn't affect me, I don't want to think about it. Like, we're, we're hard workers. We just like to get out and work, go home, be with our families. But I think now we actually have to get off that fence and we have to actually be looking over the fence, look at, looking what's happening, especially what bills are going to be enacted through Parliament. I was talking to George Christensen a, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that lots of legislation that's coming through uh, would surprise people where it's actually coming from. It's not things that the people have said that that they wanted or they need. It's these big organisations and bureaucrats and things that are pushing things through, obviously, because it, it gives them an advantage as opposed to the Australian people. So I think we need to be paying attention and we need to be getting involved, just everyday people, so that we can be sure that things aren't going to be enacted into Parliament that are going to be pretty scary for the future, especially for the future of our kids. Um, now, I wanted to mention um, sort of the pushback in Australia. Uh, there's been a lot of people as part of these anti-mandate freedom rallies uh, across the country in, in all different states in Sydney and in um, Melbourne and Brisbane and, um, you know, you name it, all the major cities sort of across the country. And there was a really big one, obviously, in Canberra. Uh, a month or so ago, and a lot of uh, confusion around what sort of happened there. A lot of people were saying that they've got injuries from being there, like sunburn sort of conditions, mm. um, headaches, nausea, nosebleeds. Um, and there were some interesting photographs that were taken from that day, which looked like the police down there were deploying some kind of weapon or some kind of deterrent, some kind of defence tactic, as they would probably label it, mm. Um around the crowds. And a lot of people had a lot of questions. There were a lot of, I guess, guesses what it could be, educated guesses. But we, all of us were kind of going, we just want to know what, what mm. was it that the AFP, well, what was it that the police down in Canberra were actually deploying? And I've worked in the police for 12 years. I know that we have certain capabilities. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've never seen it, though, used in this context. And in this context, I mean in peaceful contexts with families and children. I've only ever seen it being used in, in, in different uh, circumstances. Now, yourself and I believe Senator Malcolm Roberts raised this question um, because many Australians just wanted to know what, what actually was it and was it justifiable to use in this circumstance? Um, so I, I'd love to hear whereabouts that is. You put an inquiry and they said that they would get back to you. I understand you might not have all the answers, but I'd love to sort of hear where you're at with it all. Yeah, it was a really, um, I suppose, um, interesting period there. That was Senate estimates, uh, I think, a month ago or mm. thereabouts. It was only a few days, if not a week, after the uh, convoy um, happened in Canberra. And, of course, there were probably two things that stood out about the convoy, or maybe even three. Um, one of them um, is, is the fact that these freedom rallies all over the country have been... I think actually the very essence of Australia. Um, they are unified, they are peaceful almost exclusively, um, and they are populated with people who are, uh, represent Australia, you know, genuine Australian people 
um, who are there to protest and it's their right to do that. And so that was very telling. Flags of every country, you know, you'd see Greek, yeah. Croatian, Italian, you know, you name it, they were there, including the Australian flag. And it struck me that it was quite a spectacle. And we saw those in November, all, as you said, all over the country, these, these freedom rallies that were really, I think, almost universally spectacular, frankly. I mm. just think they were great examples of, of what we are and a great window into, you know, the, the soul of the country. So, and I know, you know, you, you spoke at one as well when, you know, you saw it with your own eyes. I mean, those numbers mm. were not insignificant. They, and even here in South Australia, we had one, I think October or so, just before no, November, the biggest one here, which would have, I mean, I've, I think, I mean, I'm just guessing everyone guesses on crowd numbers, but if it was 25 to 30,000 people, I wouldn't be, I mean, it must be about right. Um, the local, uh, I'm just going to use another term, but let's call it a, a newspaper, um, uh, the Adelaide Advertiser, of course, mm -hmm. wrote it up as being, you know, several hundred people, uh, most of whom were troublemakers and you know, all this sort yeah. of nonsense. Um, and so it was a point of extreme frustration for me that this wasn't getting reported properly. It's not a, not a unique mm. phenomenon, by the way, the mainstream media, you know, missing the point or deliberately, whatever it may be. Um, but in this case, this was particularly frustrating because, you know, I saw it with my own eyes. I spoke at one of them as well. And um, good people, people who are worried about their future teachers, police officers, doctors, lawyers, everyone, um, with maybe one rat bag in the entire crowd. So that translated into the Canberra experience and the Canberra experience was even greater. I mean, I, I, I didn't get there because, you know, I had to be back here in Adelaide, but um, I saw I saw it as you probably saw it and mm. um, it was extraordinary, huge numbers. So we put that to the um, police commissioner and he, you know, I think reported or repeated the number that was going around 10,000. Now, there, were, there was, no. I mean, there was just no way there were 10,000. But I'm not saying yeah. he's making it up or he's lying or whatever. I just, that was the number that was being bandied around in the press. It goes to show how powerful it is because it gets repeated. So we mm. put that question on, on, on notice uh, after the event where we write to them after the essence hearings. So that's the first thing I want to know because... He did say that they were extremely peaceful, which was good to get on the record, and yep. also that it was the biggest crowd in Canberra, biggest protest in Canberra since the 80s. Now, you would think, mm. and we've had some, by the way, we've had that one with the farmers where the you know, doors were getting beaten in, yeah. and they make the news. This one didn't seem to. Why? Mm. That's the first question. The second thing is they were peaceful. We knew that. Now, you know, in one sense, I don't think there's too much of a problem with police preparing. I mean, you would know more about this than I would, preparing for the worst. You know, they, so yep. they, they're allowed to do that, of course. I mean, that's... Contingency what, plans. Contingencies, right? So mm. I don't necessarily yep. have a problem with um, these tactics, but people were sending around photos on the day before and the day of and a few days after of these strange boxes that were sort of like this mm. square... Um, which you know, I don't know much about it, but I'd sort of recognise as being this sort of um, you know anti uh, you know group or you call it, crowd control type device called an LRAD, a long range acoustic device. Um, <clears throat> so I was intrigued by it. There were, there were about six of them just in the vicinity of Parliament House, a couple on the roofs, roof, and a um, couple on the sides, and some down the front doors. And so we asked that question. So Senator Roberts did as well. He asked that, and the police commissioner said, look, I'd like to take it on notice. Fair enough. I don't, you know. And so I pulled out the photo and said, this is the one we're talking about. And, you know, I better take that on notice, which is completely understandable. I get it. Yeah. The thing that really bothered me, though, was that I, I, I did, and I'm sure you heard them as well, and I saw them on social media as well. There were a more than insignificant number of reports of injuries of mm. a sort of, you know, some, some severe, some less severe, but, you know, similar comments in the hundreds on the same day of people experiencing those symptoms, you said mm. dizziness, nausea, blistering. Now, I, I don't know. I don't know. We, we asked whether they were used, those, those machines. They said, look, they were only used in their loudspeaker format because they're designed to project a beam of sound, which apparently when it's turned on is, you know, dispersed as a crowd or whatever. Yeah. They, they said they weren't used for that format. But the amount of anecdotal comments about injuries was extreme. I mean, really enough yeah. to make you wonder. So we've asked that question as well. Was something else used? Um, we also asked about the interruptions in um, streaming because I was watching That's live right. and, and the, the, the streaming was breaking up. Now, I suppose that could be a product of bandwidth and too much, you know, on the whatever, maybe, I don't know. But um, there were a whole heap of really interesting little things that happened on the day that do require further 
investigation. We have asked those on notice. We've asked okay. what was used, where it was used, um, you know, whether there was something else used, whether there was an active denial style, you know, type of defensive mm. weapon used or whatever it will be. But but certainly it's interesting. And I think people do have a right to know about that. I, I think it was a, mm. an unfortunate look, if nothing else. Um, and so we'll wait to see what the answers are. We haven't got them yet. They're not required to produce them yet, I should say. Okay. That's sort of what I was going to ask you, but that answers my question. I think it was Pauline Hansen as well, actually, from One Nation, had a lot of trouble with her phone mm. on the day. Um, and she actually did a big post about it, asking a lot of questions. And yeah, there, there are a lot of people who do have a lot of questions about that day. So I'm looking forward to um, getting your update once those questions are answered. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a need for transparency right now. There is a fracture in relationship, I think, between Australian government, um, police and, and civilians and things. So I think having transparency is probably the only way that I'm not even sure if that's going to cut it at the moment, but it's certainly a step in the direction for reconciliation and, and I guess, um, bridging that gap back a little bit again. Um, but speaking about, I guess, trust and mistrust and the government and overreach and things, something which you uh, speak about and, and you want to bring up and you were on, I think, with Corey Bernardi the other night, you spoke about digital identity and a lot of Australians um, who maybe haven't been interested in politics until now might not really understand what that means. Mm. Could you kind of give it to us, like digital yeah. identity for for dummies or for people like me who um, is sort of new into that spectrum who would love to sort of hear what it actually is and what it would actually mean for everyday Australians. Yeah, look, it's a really big topic, this one, and it's it's I mean, probably something that's going to be um, discussed a lot in the coming weeks and months. Um, it's it's and, and look, when it comes to a basic description of it, I'm your man because that's about all I can give. It's all a bit above <laughs> my head as well. So I'd say. But um, it, it is essentially the concept is that um, that if this and there is a bill which is in consultation phases at the moment, it's out for discussion. I suppose they call it an exposure draft. Um, the concept of the legislation, though, is to provide a framework whereby there is a digital identification for every person, every Australian, I think every adult, uh, perhaps children as well at some point. But um, the concept is that you, you tie everything back to that. So your government services get allocated to that, your online presence gets tied back to that. It would potentially um, hold data about your spending habits and your medical habits and your um, you know, perhaps even religion, uh, all compiled into a central database, which um, which is managed and controlled by the government. Now, um, you know, there would be those that would say, well, you know, we get monitored all the time by big tech companies, Google and others. What's the problem with that? Well, I mean, I, I've got some serious reservations about, about this, mainly because... Um, there are well, multiple reasons. People, I don't believe, should be surveilled. I'm worried about what it looks like in years to come. I mean, sometimes these projects start with the most um, virtuous means, which then ultimately, you know, become Frankenstein's monster and turn into something else. But we've got to be very cautious of that. Um, the second thing is collating data like that and making people, um, I guess, that, um, you know, transparent in terms of their own data means that, it's there to be stolen. Um, so we know that we've seen QR codes, for example, which we were told would, in many states would be destroyed after a short period of time, have not been, have been held. In some instances, I understand, have been used for other purposes like criminal investigations um, and have been lost and hacked in some instances. So that this is the problem with government bureaucracies getting hold of your data is um, even if you know, 99 out of the 100 people in that department have honest means. It doesn't, it only takes one to not have that uh, for it to go awry. And of course, there's the other issue of where else does it go? Is it being sold off to companies to, you know, create a public profile about you and your spending habits? I mean, we see that all the time with big tech. Um, I would say, though, the, the probably the biggest um, elephant in the room when it comes to this particular setup, though, is this concept of the social credit system. And I think that's the one that really breaks this one in half, even if it's not the, you know, the, the current issue, whether it develops into that. And you touched on it earlier on. I've touched on it before as well and been widely pilloried here in the local press for having the, you know, 
you know, temerity to suggest that this might be uh, used a different way. You know, we have been conditioned in the last two years to get used to this kind of tracking, QR codes and, you know, quite invasive, um, you know, means in terms of our lives over the last little period. And as you say, what's the next emergency? Is it a climate emergency? You know, do, do you end up with a, an app like there is in other countries which tracks everything you do using this digital ID? Um, which tracks how much you buy at the supermarket. You know, you've had one steak for the week. You can't have two because we're in a climate emergency. Um, you've already filled your, your car up with petrol for the week. You can't fill it up again because we're in a climate emergency. So, I mean, people might laugh at that right now. Um, but let's be clear. I, I think this is well and truly in play if we go down this path. And I'm, I'm really concerned about it. I, I have to say, I think that um, this social credit system, by the way, it's being used in China at the moment. WeChat and other... Um, type systems already do all of this, of course, tracking people's, um, you know, even traffic infringements or, you know, whether or not they hold a door open and, you know, using this sort of facial recognition technology tied to, uh, to everything else. It's, it's already there if people need a sort of a dystopian reminder of where it could go. And just to make it even more um, overt, we're already doing it here in South Australia. We've got um, a home quarantine app, which was developed by that's um, right. The, the um, you know, um, libertarians that uh, use that very, very ironically at uh, SA Health, who um, who have decided that there is a, an opportunity to, instead of making people quarantine in a, in a, in a medi hotel, uh, to give them the opportunity, you know, the, 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 the privilege of coming home to their own home, but only in the event of using a, uh, a phone which takes a photo, sort of contacts you, takes a photo of you three times, a day when, and if you don't, it sort of correlates your facial recognition data with your GPS location. If it doesn't marry up, uh, then you get a knock on the door from the police. Now, mm. um, you know, if you were a, um, a criminal in this state and you had a home detention bracelet, you wouldn't get that kind of, um, that kind of scrutiny from the authorities. So mm. what is this all about? Now, that may well be very innocent and not tied in, but the point is that this system, the infancies of this system are building around us. Um, and as you say earlier, uh, Australians have a, a very um, admirable quality of she'll be right. Um, but, you know, people have got to be aware of what's going on here. They need to understand where their future lies and what it looks like in terms of surveillance. Mm. And people need to be very clear about whether they're happy with that. I'm not. I don't like it at all. So yeah. I've, got, I've got some um, things to say about some of that. Uh, that work that's being done and I'm interested to hear from other people as well as to their views and we'll probably be doing some survey work on that but um, people can certainly contact my office and by email if they like and, and, and give me their views as well because I, I'm, I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm certainly concerned as well. Um, I remember doing an article for Coldrum Report a little while ago about this new bill that was being enacted, which would enable author an authorised officer, which was a police officer or someone else part of this criminal investigation sort of branch to hack into your social media accounts or your online data, pose as you delete, remove and things. And it comes up originally as something that sounds like a really good cause. And coming from as a detective in the police, I think about that. I'm like, wow, I worked in the child sex crimes of Australia. That would have been really helpful for some of those pedophile rings that I was investigating and some of those thing, child molesters that are online. And, I, and you know, you have these thoughts of that could be used for good. But unfortunately, I think what we have to recognise is that we're dealing with big government and that they take a lot easier from the people than they ever give back. And the governments, if you look at history throughout the world, governments have a tendency to grow. They never get smaller. They only get bigger. And by giving legislation, while it might come across as a good thing, is actually pretty scary precedent to set. And we'd be pretty naive to think that it's not possible that the government could eventuate. I mean, look, as you said, China with this social credit system, what worries me about this digital identity in Australia is where it could go. Is this going to set up a two-tiered society? Those of us who aren't willing to comply with our digital identity and those who are, and how is that going to be enforced? Because people like you and me who don't want the government tracking us and having facial recognition and knowing what we're doing, what we're eating, how, how many hours we sleep a day, all of these things. Um, you know, I sort of, I kind of, I, I really, 
I'm, I'm actually terrified where, where it could go, but I think that we need to be super mindful that history repeats itself. And, you know, it's, I certainly don't want it and I'm not a criminal and I don't want it. I'm an everyday Australian who doesn't want this social credit system. But, you know, what if I, if I say I don't want to do it? Does that mean I'm going to end up in jail? Does that mean I'm not going to be able to access medical uh, support when I need it? Are my kids not going to be able to go to school? because I won't put them on the digital identity. And you can sort of see the fracture that it could cause in society with this two-tiered thing. Um, it, it's super scary. Um, I hope people do reach out to you if they do have any questions about it. It's something we need to talk about. It's certainly something we need to raise awareness from. Is there really any stopping it from happening? Like, do you, are, are we sort of up against like an impossible feat or, or do, do you still see that there's redeemable qualities and we can kind of get on top of it. Well, I think there always are as long as politics can push back. I mean, and that's historically been the case. I, I guess the thing that's different in 2022 than was perhaps 20 years ago, though, is this, this era of globalisation. And, um, you know, that is something that requires extreme political will to push back on. We see, um, you know, just the other week, um, the forces of 200 and I think it's more now companies that are boycotting Russia um, now you might say, "Good on them." Well, what's you know, what's the problem with that? Well, that's all very well and good until they turn the guns on you, um, you know, or Australia, as the case may be. And so, one of the issues I think is is um, to what extent are we as a country being, um, you know, ha having our feet held to the fire by forces that transcend our own government? And I and I think that's the most frightening thing of all. Uh, that is, you know, are we? collectively, um, you know, sort of made pariahs of the international community by not adopting systems like this. Um, and that is a frightening prospect because I, I, I totally agree. I mean, these things often sound um, very inane, very banal, you know, and, and what's the problem? And you're not doing anything wrong. So what's the problem? You often hear that, don't you? It's like, I don't have a problem with, you know, this, that or the other because I'm not doing anything wrong. But, you know, that's all well and good until the rules change on you and you're being monitored for something that, wasn't wrong at the time, but now is, and you know, this, this, this mechanism is there to, to follow you. In fact, it was George Christensen who, who actually probably alerted me to um, this, this sort of scenario, and George will be a tremendous loss to the, to the parliament and, you know, tremendous loss to people like myself as well, because um, he was very often a, um, you know, sort of a shining light on these issues. He actually coined the phrase, uh, in something I was at, this, this naughty or nice register. Uh, and he was talking about vaccine passports at that stage. Uh, and it really alerted my mind to what was being spoken about here in talking about this concept about a two-tiered society of, you know, some getting privileges that others didn't. We saw the most egregious versions of that floating around in, um, you know, when WA and certainly in uh, the Northern Territory not that long ago as well, where there were restrictions put on people from leaving their homes if they, you know, you had certain privileges if you were, if you'd had the injection and certain if you didn't. Um, now, I mean, I, I just, you know, once again, no science on that, but the ability to be able to monitor people through that shift in, in public discourse, that's the thing that's frightening. And you know, being able to have this framework there that can monitor you means that the rules can change around you. And, you know, it might be that you think, well, it can monitor me for not committing a terrible crime, but what's tomorrow is not very terrible crime, refusing a medical treatment. And that's today's terrible crime, you know, in a sense. Um, so look, I, I, I am very concerned about that. I think once again, though, the most important thing people can do is be involved in the political process, because ultimately, um, we are we are not a weak nation. We are a, a very strong nation. We punch above our weight, um, and countries around the world have shown that if you can push back against these these powers, President Trump did it for years on end. He fought against these forces and won. We're not the United States. We don't have that sort of muscle, but we've we've got some power, and we need to be we need to be doing that and pushing back against these influences that are trying to jump the fence on us. Hmm. It's interesting you brought up the whole Russian sort of Ukraine situation and how we're boycotting Russian products. You see videos going around the internet where people are pouring out vodka, where they've, I think it was Coles, changed the name of their chicken Kiev. Um, yeah. And just to be honest, it's virtue signaling. If we're going to call a spade a spade, it's virtue signaling. It really doesn't achieve much. And if we're going to go down that that road, well, why why are we not boycotting China? 
I mean, no. if, yeah, exactly. yeah. but seriously, because they like back in, you know, March, April 2020, when our Australian government didn't really know what they were dealing with, they asked certain questions. And I think it was the um, one of the embassy uh, members uh, for China down in Canberra basically gave like an ultimatum. If you're not going to question us or we're going to change wine and, and wheat and red meat sales. And that was sort of like a threat. So why why is it that we're choosing to virtue signal for one thing and, and not the other? I mean, if we're going to really go that far, then the shelves that hold the vodka need to be taken down and put in the skip oh. bin because yeah. that's the reality of virtue signaling. And, and I guess that's relativism and subjectivism in, in a nutshell. It's just how, whatever you feel and the emotion at the particular time, but it, it lacks objective truth and, and reality. Um, and I actually wanted to touch on sort of towards the end here about Ukraine and Russia, because you posted on your social media a video by Tucker Carlson, and you were sort of going through... Um, everything that we're not being told in Australia about the situation over there. And it's interesting because um, I would say I'm in an unpopular position um, with my thoughts on that whole situation. But sadly, again, um, me just talking about context or me just talking about the whole picture and not picking a side. I'm on the side of humanity. I think you'd have to be a, a psychopath to want any innocent lives being lost. And that's the side I'm on. Um, I'm on the side of humanity. I, I'm on the side of I don't want innocent people being caught in the crossfire of any war. Um, but unfortunately, just having conversations about things that we might not be privy to is is off limits, it seems. And it appears that the mainstream media are peddling a narrative again. And so I'd love to get your thoughts about the situation in there and sort of what led you to share that Tucker Carlson um, post. Well, I think at first there's a whole heap of stuff that we could we could spend hours talking about there because it's such a fascinating <laughs> topic. Actually, the yeah. first one that just jumps to mind is this sort of demonisation that you get from mainly from the political left um, who love to call names in order to uh, try to squeeze the narrative in their own direction. You know, if you call people anti-vax, simply because they're pro-choice about matter, then, then that'll scare them off and they'll, they'll do what we want. You can see that developing now a little bit with the Ukraine situation. And what do they say? Last week's anti-vax is today's pro-Putin. Well, I don't know anyone that's yeah. particularly pro-Putin. I, I don't, I don't do consider I. myself pro-Putin. I, mm. I don't have any warm feelings towards his authoritarian regime or, or that of China or any of the above. But what I do like, a bit like you, is the truth. And also the humanitarian side of it. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking to see all of this going on. It's mm. um, you know very reminiscent in many ways of what happened in the um, in in some ways in the, in the Balkans in the early '90s, which was the part of the world that my family from, my distant family were from. So to see this sort of play, I mean, we didn't have you know too much of a connection there, but to see it playing out again in real time is awful and terrible. But I think what we're seeing now out in the community is. Um, this distrust of what they're seeing. I think I don't think communities, um, you know, feeling for or trust in the media has ever been lower uh, because of what we've been through over the last two years and beyond. I mean, it's always been there, but um, that's the real message for me. And so uh, to see people like Tucker Carlson taking it on and telling truth, telling some of the truth about what's happening, that there's not always a bad guy and a good guy. Sometimes there are two bad guys. Uh, sometimes there's a good guy and a slightly better guy. Sometimes there's a bad guy and a slightly worse guy. We, we don't know. Um, but the truth is here that the story is not always being told. And, you know, like you, I, I find a great degree of frustration in what you could also call gesture politics, people tipping out vodka. And, you know, I had a friend once who was a, a comedian and, and he said, he, he, there's no point in being vegetarian at a restaurant because the chicken's already dead. Like you've already killed it. So it's, no, it's, yeah. it's not it's too late for that one, right? Well, it's a bit like that here. I mean, tipping out vodka is not hurting the Putin regime. I can assure you, all it's doing is making your Facebook feed look more woke. Um, mm. And uh, Elon Musk summed it up pretty nicely on Twitter yesterday where he, he put up a sort of a, a badge saying, I'm... <laughs> Well, I'm for the I'm I'm for the current thing, you know. Just Supporting the current thing, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm supporting <laughs> the current thing, you know, and it's a bit like that. This we mm. we saw the beginnings of this in 2012, I think it was, with um, the sort of fad that was chasing down Joseph Coney, the terrible African warlord, and everybody had it up on their early days of their Facebook, and nothing happened. Of course, you know, Coney's still alive and well, and you know, presumably, and doing all the terrible things he did before. People love an easy way of doing it. It's called slacktivism. 
Um, and it's no use to anyone, particularly when you're ill-informed. And frankly, we're all a bit ill-informed at the moment because we don't know where to get the truth from. So that's the frustration for me. But those, those um, you know, the exception to the rule, I think, is Tucker's show. I think he does a terrific job in terms of getting to the core of what's actually happening, speaking without fear and favour, and presumably getting called every name under the sun for simply having the, the guts to actually say it. I mean, a great example of that was the uh, that episode of Q&A, which apparently is still on. Nobody seems to be watching it. I'm certainly not watching it. I think six and a half people and their mother were watching it the other week. But <laughs> those who were saw this kid get kicked out for asking a question about, right. about, about Russia. Mm. Well, I can't wait till Senate estimates. I've got a whole heap of questions about that coming up because yeah. if that's the best our national broadcaster can do, then um, you know we, we have even more questions to ask about whether or not we're still getting value for money. Yeah, and it's interesting because the Q&A, that particular question that that gentleman had to ask was vetted prior to him being right. in the audience. Yeah. Like, And so it, it does seem like there is a really unfair bias in our media. I think that political activism has you know, has turned into the day job of journalist. Um, and I yeah, think the two yeah. worlds have crossed over to mm. the point where the the line between political activism and journalism has blurred so much you can't tell them apart. Yeah. And I guess it's it's a it's a reflection on our culture. It's a reflection on on where we are. And unfortunately, uh, at the moment, emotion is defining fact and intention is defining morality. And that's just not a sustainable way for any nation to flourish. And we have had a pretty successful nation in Australia and around the world in the West because we have essentially built our pillars on uh, on morality and truth and fact and not fiction. So I think we have to really turn it around or we're going to see keep seeing uh, the West implode, unfortunately, because stupidity can't sustain itself and it will right. eventually collapse. So I think the media, like you said, have a lot to answer for, um, and especially the corporations, the bureaucrats and, and, and the government um, who are sort of facilitating and egging on the media to, to do what they're sort of doing. But, um, look, I, I absolutely have loved having you on. I've loved hearing everything that you've had to say, and I guarantee you most Australians are definitely uh, cheering you on and want to see you still making a difference in our parliament. And um, I'm sure a lot of South Australians are grateful, and I'm jealous that you're not in New South Wales. I'd love to have, um, you know, more people like you who are in a position to actually make positive change for our country. But look, where can people follow you? Where can people find you? Oh, well, thanks for all of that. It's very generous. I don't know about any of the, uh, the bona fides of any of that, but I just do. It, sometimes being a loud mouth who has no ability to shut that mouth is a is a is a is a virtue. So we'll keep trying with that and see how it goes. Um, look, I'm, I'm probably at this stage, sadly, Facebook uh, senator. Dot, uh, Senator Alex Antic on Facebook is probably the most one, but I do run a Getter account as well in the very real expectation of getting cancelled at some point um, with one of our big tech overlords. Uh, and of course, I look forward to Truth Social, which will be uh, the, the Trump mm. platform, which I'm intending to jump on board as well in the hope that that will provide a credible alternative. We, we do have a YouTube and a Rumble page, but mainly the social media is the, is the place for it. So um, we'll keep plugging along there until we overstep an invisible line on on Facebook and, uh, you know, and we get cancelled. So <laughs> see how we go. <laughs> oh, well, thanks again for joining me today. I really appreciate you. And, um, yeah, and look forward to hearing about all these inquiries and court matters that are coming up. So hope, hoping and praying for good outcomes. Thanks, Evelyn. Thanks for having me and keep up the great work. I'll be watching too.